0: Well, as you can see here from the screen this morning, the title of our sermon is Praying for Loved Ones. Praying for Loved Ones. Now, in this context, of course, we're going through the prayers of Paul. We've been doing a series on the prayers of Paul. This is our 31st prayer of Paul that we've been looking at here in the New Testament, which goes to show that Paul must have thought quite a lot about prayer if he was going to include so many of them in his letters that he would write to various individuals, in this case, Timothy, a a mentor, a a son in the faith of his, and also letters that he wrote to various churches. So as as we're thinking about what Paul's priorities were, his perspective, he obviously valued prayer quite highly. But as I was thinking about this particular prayer, he's praying for a particular person, in this case, Timothy. And many of you are familiar with the close relationship that Paul had with Timothy that's where I got the title here praying for loved ones because certainly Paul had a deep love for Timothy though you might not be able to fi- find an exact uh, verse where he says to Timothy I love you you can see it on the pages of scripture as he if, as you see him pour out his heart to Timothy even in these two letters first and second Timothy and you see him talk about and travel with and minister with and have these close bonds with Timothy throughout his various ministries. And so as you think about this, he had this close relationship with this man. And he was many things to Timothy as you think about Paul and Timothy's special or close relationship. He was a teacher, uh, a mentor. He was a fellow worker. That's one that you might Overlook in the sense that many of the times that Paul is writing letters to various churches on second and third missionary journeys, but later in his life, after after his early trip with Barnabas, you see that Timothy becomes a part of the fabric of Paul's journeys, of Paul's letters. He comes up fairly often, but he comes up in the context of being a fellow worker, working right alongside, shoulder to shoulder, as a as a brother who is striving together in the faith to advance the cause of Jesus Christ, to shine the light of the glorious gospel into the darkness of these various places that God directs his steps. And so he was a fellow worker, Paul was of Timothy. He was a spiritual father to Timothy in the sense that he was viewed in a, very, in a very paternal kind of a way as we have every reason to believe that Timothy's own father was unsaved. And so as a father figure in the faith, Paul would serve as that. To Timothy, just as an aside, realize that there's many different kinds of ways that God can impact other people through your willingness to be used of him. And oftentimes that might involve ministering to your own children, but oftentimes that might involve being a familial figure, a paternal figure or a maternal figure in the spiritual sense, but in a physical sense also to other people in this church. A sister in the faith, a brother in the faith where it actually transcends to the point where if It's not uncommon for people to say, I actually have developed a closer brotherly or sisterly or paternal relationship with a believer than my own family at times. And there's a number of reasons why that can be true. One of the reasons is that many families, of course, are very strained. There's strained relationships. There's geographical limitations sometimes. There are other reasons why uh, people don't have that closeness. One of them has to do with being not not of the same mindset when it comes to things of faith. So naturally you can't have that close intimacy centered around spiritual matters if you're not wired for sound the same way. If if you're not both having the same perspective, you're not equally yoked together in a sense and as a family or as a as a friendship or as a partnership or as a marriage, you're not pulling in the same direction, naturally you're not gonna have that intimacy this this huge chunk of compatibility is going to be missing from that relationship And oftentimes you think about what makes relationships thrive well you could in many ways tie it back to compatibility and you would talk about maybe different pieces of that pie uh, of compatibility but one of the biggest ones of course would be spiritual compatibility my point being getting off track here again (laughs) some of you are like yeah big surprise You could have these kinds of uh, spiritual father, paternal, maternal interactions and relationships with other believers that you're not a blood relative to. And that was true of Paul and Timothy. He was also a brother to Timothy, a brother in Christ. So it, that's an interesting dynamic because as you think about faith families here and you, you look around, there's, in my life, there's many of you I would look out and I would say, uh, this individual has been like a brother or sister to me. I see two of you here. I grew up with you, right? So we have Melissa and Nate here. We've been together for our whole lives, right? And a little bit difference in age, but I mean, mainly we've grown up together. And so we're like brothers and sisters in Christ. But then some of you I look out there and you're more like, spiritual mothers and fathers to me, though my own uh, spiritual father is, my own physical father is sitting in the audience here today too. And We've had that kind of a relationship where you've poured in and invested in my life seeking to positively benefit me as it related to Spiritual matters. Sometimes as it related to physical matters and just literally helped me out with something. Uh, So we have those kind of relationships where on one hand Paul was uh, as an older believer somebody that could mentor and could act as a spiritual father to Timothy. On the other hand he was just an older brother too because ultimately God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. So everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is a child of God. And if you're a child of God and I'm a child of God, regardless of our age difference, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about that. If you don't really have a strong sense of family on a human level, on a physical level, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You've got a big family, look around. Now, some of them you might not know very well because this is the first time you've ever met them. Well, guess what? Get to know them. You know, get to know them, go go be friendly. Try that. You know, sometimes people are like, I'm not very close to anyone. And yeah, because you're not very friendly. <laughs> I mean, if if your approach to getting to know people is to hightail it out of here as soon as you can and avoid any conversations with anyone, you're probably not going to get to know them too well. And there's, there's other factors, but one of them is if we're focused on just a spiritual plane and we're not gonna be sidetracked by personality differences, we're not gonna be sidetracked by people who are thoughtless at times, people who aren't always kind, people aren't, who aren't always being led and directed by God's spirit. So they're not always gracious, they're not always loving. But if we're seeing them as God sees them through, through the eyes of grace and we're not focused on whether they deserve it or not, we can actually develop a really close-knit family here. My prayer would be that we would. And some of you have, but, but sometimes what happens is that we start to take each other for granted too. So we, you know, years gone by, maybe we would have taken a moment to send a text or, or make a phone call or send a birthday note or a Christmas card, or maybe would, we would have invited somebody to come over and have a cup of coffee, or we would go ask them if they want to meet us at the village inn in, in Virginia and have a meal or come over for a meal or want to go snowshoeing with us or do something with us, or uh, we would have done that. And, and sometimes as we, you know, sometimes we get to take it for granted. Sometimes we get busy with life, which is something to be very mindful of. What am I filling my life up with? Uh, I, I don't mean this to be overly uh, negative. It certainly don't mean it to be in any legalistic sense because jumping through hoops doesn't, by itself, doesn't make you spiritual. But there's things that will benefit you in your life, and the Bible lays some of those things out. And and I'd be lying if I didn't think this uh, yesterday a couple of times, there's quite a number of people. This, this Again, I'm not trying to guilt people into uh, making the kinds of decisions that would benefit them spiritually, but there was quite a number of young people even in this church that could have been at this youth event that weren't. And some of the reasons were reasons that we, we would say even, even from a spiritual perspective, there was no way around it. They had other obligations that had to be met. But that's not true in, in every situation. And the question that needs to be asked often is, if I know that God knows more than I do, and he says, fellowshipping and availing myself of the teaching of the word of God and fellowshipping with other believers and and seeking to elevate and prioritize spiritual matters before everything else will benefit me. And if God knows what he's talking about, then what was it that was so important in my life that I couldn't avail myself of that opportunity? And... And I think God does want to convict us. We're told that the word of God is intended to convict and challenge our thinking at times. So we don't have to soft pedal around all of this all the time. Sometimes we can say, what was it that was so important that I wouldn't trust God and take him at his word and know that this would have benefited me more than whatever else it was that I was doing? Now, again, that's not without exception. There were some things that were unavoidable. But you know, it wasn't, it wasn't m- me who missed out, in a sense, although I missed out from not being able to fellowship with you. In a sense, every time we don't kind of plug into the body, the body is hurting because there's something missing. So it does hurt me in a sense, but it hurts you even more when you think about the young people that missed out on that. And you're like, what are we teaching them exactly? Where we'll allow them to make everything else in life a priority, but not but not this. And so, don't be mad at me. I'm not I'm not trying to bust your chops or what does Eric say? Give you the berries. Is that it? What does he say? Giving them the berries. Is that it? Yeah. I hadn't heard that one before. That's a must be a Falstrom thing. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is that God has asked me to you know, speak to his truth, and, and that's what the word of God says. And so instead of getting, oh, how dare he, you know, like, don't, don't get defensive. That's not the point. Uh, the point is, let God change your thinking so that you can challenge even your young people, or if you're sitting here as a young person and you know that that's you, let God challenge your thinking. Don't get bitter towards me. Don't get bitter towards him. Just say, yeah, I needed to hear that this morning. Thank you, God, that I could hear that. You know, all the things we need to hear aren't lovely all the time. They're not always, like, sugar-coated. Some of it's just kind of (laughs) direct. We got to that from brothers in Christ, just so you know. know. Now, you think about the greater your investment in someone, the greater your concern for his or her well-being. So Paul has invested deeply into Timothy. And as he invests into Timothy, he has this greater and greater concern for Timothy, and you can see it in the way that he writes these letters to Timothy. So from a spiritual perspective, prayer is the primary expression of love and care you could possibly have for another. The the best expression that you could have of love and concern for somebody, if you're a child of God, is to be praying for them. The best expression, the purest expression of concern would be to bring them before the throne of grace. To, to, to bring them to the Father in prayer. Because everything else that you could do that might be an expression or an outflow of your love and concern for them would be then second to that. Because you, you'd want to appropriate the greatest resource you have to bring to bear to, to benefit their lives and the greatest resource you have to bring to bear to benefit another person's life is to pray for them i have been so convicted and challenged by this series the best thing you can do for somebody is not to worry about them it's it's not to even it's not to gossip about them that's for sure It's not even to undertake to try to make their physical life better, though God very likely will direct you to invest in them in a very real and tangible and and temporal sense as you're living life together. But the best thing that you could do if you care about somebody is to pray for them. I, I hope that these 31 weeks haven't been for nothing. I hope as we look at these prayers, we're like, I need to pray more. I need to pray more. I need to pray more. I hope that's the takeaway from this series. And so it's, it's something that is then, as Paul has this especially close bond with Timothy, naturally then it's reflected in his frequent prayers for Timothy. In today's passage, it illustrates this principle and this perspective of having frequent Prayers for those that we love or are praying for our loved ones. So let's take a closer look. I'm assuming most of you are in Second Timothy. We're going to be going through Lord willing, if I stay on track here, the rest of verses three through seven, which is a segment, or he makes up a couple of paragraphs that stand together. May we start, let's read it the whole thing for context. It starts with, "I thank God." And I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So for those of you who love verse 7 you're gonna get the context of verse seven here today. Sometimes it's nice when we memorize verses, we sometimes memorize them apart from context, which is fine, but you're gonna see the context that that verse is written in. It's written in the context of stirring up this gift that is in Timothy that Paul's encouraging him to stir up or not, let that flame go out. Now, is this a prayer of Paul's? No, not really. This is him telling somebody that he's been praying for him constantly and then talking about some of the kinds of things that he would have been praying for because these are the kinds of things that he's telling him. This is my hope. This is my aspiration. This is my desire for you. If these are the hopes, aspirations, and desires that Paul has for somebody that he loves, Naturally, in the context, he's saying, I've been praying for you constantly. I'm, get, I'm assuming that we can rightfully say he was, he was praying about these kinds of matters for Timothy as he's telling him about these things or reminding him about these things here in these verses. So let's dig in a little bit, because remember, as we talk about this series, it wasn't just all Paul's prayers, but just even passages that deal with him talking about prayer. We'll start with verse three here and break it down a little bit, unpack it. I thank God he says whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day so if you took out some of the descriptive who some of the descriptive phrases or clauses that just add to the primary thought the primary thought is I thank God as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day so then he you have Again, other clauses that just expand on that idea, and we'll touch on those. But here we have the main idea. I thank God, and you'd insert there, for you. I thank God for you. That's the main idea that Paul is communicating to Timothy here. Now, how did Paul go about thanking God? as he thinks about, I thank God for you. How did he go about doing that? Well, I remember you in my prayers. We know that prayers of gratitude or prayers of thanksgiving are one type of way you could be talking to God. Now, again, to try to take talking to God and to break it into different categories and definitions and and be real mechanical about it, you've missed the whole point of prayer. Prayer is very generally just a person talking to a personal and real and intimate and present God. Not somebody else's God, a personal God. And so as you are living life with God in a dependent posture on God, the idea is that you would be talking to God. Now, when we talk about different categories of prayers, we're just doing it for the sake of an academic way of Compartmentalizing the different kinds of things that you might talk to God about, but there's no limitation to that. As you look at the Bible, you say prayers, you see prayers of frustration, you see prayers of anger at God. Well, we don't have a category for that because we're not really promoting that. But can talking to a personal God, an intimate God, can it involve expressing frustration, uh, being raw? Being real, being open, being honest, you should try it, right? Maybe the relationship would grow stronger if you were a little bit more real and authentic and raw with a God who wants you to be living life with him. But we think about, even as we think about a prayer of thanksgiving, it just, it's just a theological way of describing this is a kind of way of talking to God in this moment that is involving more of a focus of gratitude, And can we be informed by seeing that in the Bible there are categories of prayer where people are just expressing thanks to God? Well, yeah, think about how you talk to other people that you love who are providing and undertaking for you in your life. Think about the kinds of things you talk to them about. As somebody who you love is undertaking and providing and meeting needs in your life, what would one of the kinds of things that would be a part of those conversations be? Well, I hope you're not an ungrateful type of person. I hope as somebody provides and undertakes and, and invests in you that one of the ways that you're communicating or talking to them is that you're saying, thank you. And we have to teach young people to do this. Is our flesh naturally thankful for anything? No, our flesh is naturally, what else can you do for me our flesh is naturally, instead of counting our blessings and name them, naming them one by one, our, our flesh is naturally looking at everything that we perceive to be missing in our lives, and, and in some instances, blaming God for not fulfilling our every want and desire. You know That's why with young people, you have to teach them how to give thanks and to say thank you. So how, how many of you have, have done that? You know, you say to the youngster, and what do you say? And and what do you say? (laughs) Right? You have to prompt them. With what hope in mind that you could trail after them for the rest of their lives saying, and what do you say? What's the hope? That they would internalize it. Now, would you be satisfied as as a parent if they internalized it just mechanically and at least were polite kids? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. That'd be better than some alternatives. But what you're actually hoping is that they would understand internally what gratitude is all about. I mean, if you've, if you've managed to produce a child who's polite, doesn't mean it at all, but just mechanically says thank you because he's a polite child or she's a polite child, whoop not doo That's not the objective. The objective is to raise a child who has a heart for the Lord, who actually understands what gratitude is actually about, who has a heart of thanksgiving for the things that are occurring in their lives. So there we have, as we talk about this, thanksgiving, how does he do it? I remember you in my prayers. Now, it's just this informal conversation with God. Now, you tend to remember and think about those you care about. That's something that came to my mind as I was saying, I thank God for you, and we're gonna see how often, but I thank God for you. I remember you in my prayers. We tend to remember and think about those you care about. So when people aren't a part of your prayer life, this is the honest truth. The honest truth is you must not care that much about them. So what do you do about that? Well, you, you pray that God could give you a way of looking at people that's his way of looking at people so that you would care about them instead of just being focused on a limited group of people or on yourself, that God would expand the sphere of concern that you have for the people that he's put in your life. So it would gradually or maybe rapidly involve more and more people. So how often did this occur? It says, I pray for you. I remember you in my prayers without ceasing, And night and day. Now that's used figuratively to communicate a regular and frequent occurrence. He wants Timothy to know that. Timothy was likely encouraged to hear that. I'm encouraged when you tell me I'm praying for you. That's why people ask for prayer. It's encouraging to know that people are lifting them up to the one who could do something about the problems that they're facing or the trials or the difficulties or the circumstances that are in front of them. They know that God's the one who could meet the needs that they have in their lives and they're thankful that collectively people are praying for them. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. God factors our prayers into the equation and we don't know how exactly. We just know he says he does. We can't even really wrap our minds around it or comprehend how that would happen or how that would even make sense. I'm I'm being raw with you when I say I have no idea why that would make a difference. I don't actually. But yet God says it does. Can we take God at his word? He doesn't owe us an explanation, friends. You know, There's a song, we'll probably end up singing it because, well, I get to pick them, so. (laughs) But the chorus of the song says, I need truth instead of answers. I need faith instead of sight. I need trust when I can't find the reasons why. I need presence over blessing. I need promise over proof. I need hope instead of healing in my life. What I really need is you. See, we have this expectation that God owes us explanations for things we don't understand. I don't understand this. This is one I'm telling you. I don't understand. But yet I know that God is true and his word is true and I'm gonna take God at his word and we need to be convinced that there's value in praying for others without ceasing night and day. Now, what would motivate Paul to do this? Well, he has a deep love and concern for Timothy. He's invested greatly in Timothy. He views him as part of his family. Now, he views many believers as part of his family, but he has an especially close bond to Timothy where he refers to him as his son. Look at 1 Timothy chapter one. You're just two or three pages to your left. 1 Timothy chapter one, verse two. And just the first part of that verse says, he's, he's telling, he's, it's the, I forget what they call it, but the, the two part of the letter, two colon and then Timothy. But he says, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, a true son in the faith. Now, if you come back to 2 Timothy, look at chapter one, which we were in, but look ahead of where we were at. He has the same heading, where he says, to Timothy, now he calls him, something different. A son who is loved, a beloved son. So what would motivate Paul to do this? He loves Timothy. He sees him as a part of his family, as a spiritual child. Now the question is, do you see fellow believers in this way? If this is the main point of this passage, is I thank God for you without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day. If, if that's the main thought here, do you have that perspective towards fellow believers? Do you, do you even pray for your biological family this way? Praying for loved ones is our title. Do you, do you even pray for your actual bl- flesh and blood biological loved ones this way? As a consistent pattern, a frequent and regular occurrence in your life. And then you extend that to your faith family. Do you pray for your faith family in that way? And the answer is we could all pray more, right? It, it, that's the simple takeaway there. Now he goes on to describe, I thank God. Now he's gonna describe God by saying whom. This is the God whom I serve with a pure conscience. And this is probably the second biggest point I want you to take away here as we think about Paul's perspective. And we often don't have this one. It indicates Paul's general mindset or posture toward God, but how does he see himself? Paul saw himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, or in this context, whom a God in general. I'm a servant of God. That's how he saw himself. And so this is a present tense verb. It emphasizes a continual or habitual way of life. The idea is, I have been serving and continue to serve as a pattern in my life. God, that's, with a pure conscience, that's my perspective. That's my posture. That's my mindset. And it, it represents his perspective regarding his purpose in life in general. Like, how do you see your purpose in life? See, I think God, and now he talks about my mission, my perspective, my focus. The emphasis that I have in my life is to serve God with a pure conscience. Is that what you see as your purpose? purpose, and and your mission. Let's look at, we could look at loss, but let's look at a few here this morning. Passages that just bring out this perspective of being a servant of God that Paul has. Not I, but Christ. I died, and and what's left of my life, I want to live in a way that would make God bigger, that would glorify and exalt Him. And so we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's one example. For the love of Christ compels us. Now, there's Two different opinions on that. The love that Christ has for us compels us or the love that we have in response to Christ's love for us compels us. Would either of them be wrong? Of course not. Love, love that Christ has for us and love that we have for him, which is, frankly, any love we have from him would, be, would come from first seeing the love that he has for us. So you're really somewhat saying the same thing. We love him, why? Because he first loved us, right. And so as we thinking about the love of Christ being our motivation, now he says, it compels us, for we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Meaning we're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We died the moment of faith where we're made into something that we weren't before. We're made alive. We're regenerated. We're given a, the Holy Spirit, a new nature. We're sealed. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're again indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You think about the blessings of being adopted into the family of God. Some people have come up with lists that have like 30 plus items on them that happen the moment of salvation. So as you're thinking about this, that's our position, our identity changed. And he did die, so it says if one died, and now he's saying and he did die, that was Jesus Christ, that those who live, who are those? The only one who has life is the one who has a son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. You're brought to life. We're brought, what was dead in trespasses and sins is brought to life. That death is, is transformed into life. And so you think that those who live, the only way you're living is if you're in Christ. The only way you're in Christ is if you put your faith alone by grace alone and Christ alone apart from human works. So those who live should no longer what? They should no longer live for themselves. Why would he say that? Because that is the default, friends. That is the natural default. That is a natural way of thinking. That is the direction the flesh would always take you if you're not being led and directed by the Spirit of God. So no longer live for yourselves, but instead live for Him who died for them and rose again. What does the resurrection show us? The resurrection shows us that the work of Christ was satisfactory. It was accepted by the Father... He rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. The reality is that the grave has no hold on you either. Oh death, where is thy sting, right? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? So you're thinking about death has no hold on the Christian. We have been made alive positionally. We've been promised a future that is secure in heaven for us that is secure by the faithfulness of God, not us. It's made available by the work of Jesus Christ, not any work on our part. And it's something that once it's obtained can never be lost. That is something that can fill you with hope, right? That is something that can cause you to, I will both lay down in peace and sleep. I can sleep restfully knowing my future is secure. My hope is in the lord who gave himself for me so this is paul's perspective this is the perspective of one who wants to serve god i'm no longer living for myself i'm living for christ romans 14:8 another fun passage that talks about paul's perspective he says for if we live if our lives continue here on earth we live we ought to live to the Lord, and if we die, we die for the sake of the Lord. Therefore, if whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This perspective is: it's not about me anymore. My my mission is to serve the Lord. Here's another one, according to Philippians one20 20 through twenty one. For those of you at home, according to my earnest expectation, he's he's talking about how he hopes his life will go. He's saying this is my earnest expectation in hope for myself for my life, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. He's, he's saying, pray that I could have boldness, that I could finish the race that is set out in front of me. He says, pray that you would have boldness. I pray that you would have boldness so you would not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But he says, this is my hope and expectation, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. Meaning, I want to make Christ bigger with my life or my death. That's all that I'm existing for. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die would be gain. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So there's the gain there. But whether by my death or my life, Christ would be made bigger, we live to lift him up. Like, we can't say that enough, right? We have to be reminded of that. Well, that's the perspective that the Apostle Paul has as he talks about, I have been serving God with a pure conscience. That's what I've been about. And a part of doing that is I've been remembering you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day and without ceasing. Now, Paul, if you think about having this perspective of serving God is very briefly, I want you to know he often introduces himself as a servant of God. And you can find it in a bunch of places. I'm going to put them all up here on the screen together uh, so that you can see them. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. We have to keep moving. But this is just, you can see that a lot of these are the very first verse of, of these letters, Romans, Philippians, and Titus, and then a little bit further into 1 Corinthians, Where he says, Paul, and now he identifies himself. He says, this is my identity. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, how about this with Paul and Timothy, who he's talking to here. They identify collectively as bondservants of Jesus Christ. Do we collectively identify as servants of God? That's who we are? That's how you can know us? You just refer to me as a servant of God. How about our song this morning? Make me a servant like you, dear Lord, living for others each day. Could, could that be the song of our life? Yes, that's what it should be. Now, let a man so consider us, 1 Corinthians 4.1, as servants of Christ. Consider us to be servants of Christ. And then Titus 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. So this is a part of the very fabric of his thinking, of how he sees his identity. Now we have a a pure conscience here, with a pure conscience. I serve God with a pure conscience, and conscience refers to a psychological faculty of mind which allows people to discern or distinguish between good and evil or right and wrong. It's not something that's easy to to define, but it's something that God has put inside every person to, one, give them an awareness of him, but also to give them in awareness of what is right and wrong, to to prick their thinking, to prick their psychologically prick their mind, give them the ability to discern these things. Paul talks about even those who don't know God, by virtue of their conscience, they do what is right or what is what is wrong. They're aware of it. How how is it that they could do that before they even know the Lord? Because God has given all men a conscience. Now, one's conscience either commends thinking and behavior it considers to be good or condemns thinking and behavior it determines to be bad. Now as such, your conscience either convicts or or comforts you depending on what you are thinking or doing. Paul is saying I have a pure conscience. So pure signifies a confidence that Paul has regarding the rightness of his thinking and his actions. So I serve God not, not in pretense, not with ulterior motives, not pridefully, but I serve God with a pure conscience. My conscience is confirming and affirming in me as I'm going through my life that I'm doing the right thing. I don't have a seared conscience that is actually pricking me and saying, what you're, up, what you're thinking right now and what you're all about right now, it's not godly. And so that's all he's saying here. Now he says, as my forefathers did, he speaks to Paul's Jewish heritage of faith. Now, we're all People that he was related to in terms of ethnicity, were they all men and women of faith? The answer is no. Some were, some weren't. Was there a heritage that he was looking back to, probably to even the patriarchs, of faith responding to God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, those that had gone before him? The answer is yes. Did he see himself as a part of that continued line of men and women of faith that had been found throughout the pages of Scripture that he was very, very well aware of as a student of Scripture? Before his conversion, he was a, a Pharisee who, though not understanding the gospel message of the and work of Jesus Christ, he was very devout in his study and understanding of the scripture. So then you think about, uh, I have, I serve God with his pure conscience as my forefathers did. What came to my mind is the name of our church, the name of our church. Our church is called Heritage Trail Bible Church. Now, it was a play on words from the very beginning. It was a play on words in the sense that Highway 20 is referred to also as Heritage Trail. It was thought to be an appropriate name for our church because of the word heritage, a godly heritage. Now, maybe I'm making that up. I wasn't around at the time. That's my understanding. If that's just a total fabrication, somebody let me know. But that's how I've always understood it. And you think about you see that that idea, or you consider the idea of having a heritage. And I thought, what kind of a heritage will you pass down? See, Paul was affected by a heritage that had gone before him. And as you think about the heritage that you will pass down, will it be a heritage of faith? Will it be a, a heritage of serving the Lord with a pure conscience? I thought about a song that I'm 99% sure it was sung at Mrs. Irv's funeral service, but the song says, oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the light of our devotion guide their way. May the footsteps that we leave lead them to believe. I don't know any more of it, but that's the gist of it. Will, will all who come behind us find us faithful? Anyway, that wasn't the main point of him saying this, but he says there's a heritage of this, of serving God with a pure conscience. Now you get to verse four here. He says, I have this great desire to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. So now he comes back to the main thought that I've been thanking God and praying for you night and day without ceasing because I have this affection for you, this concern for you. And this is a continuation now of that thought. You think about Paul, he's now gonna mention some of the specific thoughts that he has as he thinks about Timothy. He's saying, I remember you. I think about you constantly. Now, I think about you constantly in the sense that I bring you to the throne of grace in my prayers, but I'm also, he's saying I'm thinking about you constantly. I remember you. Now, I remember you in my prayers Uh, day and night and without ceasing. But what are some of the things that he remembers? Well, he remembers him in the context of greatly desiring, and that's also translated longing for you, for seeing you, for being in your proximity again. Now, there's an alternate translation of this verse, verse is, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And the idea is that recalling Timothy's tears probably at the last time they were together at the time of his parting, Paul had an intense longing to see his son in the faith that he might be filled with joy. You see that there's a little bit of reciprocal, reciprocation here where he knows that it will bring Timothy joy to see him because Timothy was tearful at their last parting. But he's saying that I may be filled with joy that's the thing I'm thinking about. I'm meditating on this, this idea that we could see each other again. I have a great desire for it. I'm longing for that, that I might be filled with joy. And if you rephrase this, it might be something like, I miss you a lot. Might put it in more modern words. I miss you a lot, especially when I remember that last tearful goodbye. And I look forward to a joy-packed reunion. That's a nice way of, I thought that was a nice paraphrase of this. I look forward to a joy-packed reunion. I remember our cheerful goodbye, and I miss you a lot. I have a great desire to see you. Now, is this how you feel about fellow believers? I hope so. I know some of you have family that you're apart from that you probably do feel that way about. Can you extend that perspective to be a little bit wider, to have an expansive view of people the way God does and not make it so limited so you'd have this feeling, great desire to see you, I long to see you, that I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be filled with joy when I do. Now, he talks about a second thing that he remembers as constantly, or he comes to mind as he's thinking about Tim- Timothy regularly. What comes to mind when he thinks about Timothy regularly is he thinks about his conversion. Now here he's going to, mem- he's going to mention just another specific memory, but it's a memory about Timothy's getting saved. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and then persuaded in, is in you also. So he's remembering that Timothy got saved but he's also remembering Timothy's way of life, his manner of living, his faithful service to Jesus Christ. So this is a, nearly every other translation literally everyone except for New King James I think even King James has a new sentence here so he's just starting another another reminder. He's he's bringing to light another memory he has as he thinks about Timothy. So when I call to remembrance, it's it's best understood as I am reminded of this as I think about you. Now we have this word genuine. I remember or I'm reminded of the genuine faith that is in you. Now there's many people who have misunderstood the emphasis here. See, genuine is literally unhypocritical or sincerely expressed faith it's not qualifying faith. It's describing an expression or outflow of that faith that had been present in Timothy's life. It's not referring to a quality of faith, saying this faith is genuine. It's saying you, I'm remembering, I'm reminded of this faithful or sincere expression, this unhypocritical expression or outflow of your faith as you went about living your life. It was your testimony of faith to others. So you, you either have faith or you don't. This is, it's not qualifying faith to say, it's the amount of faith that is important. You have faith or you don't have faith. It's the object of our faith that is important. It's what God wants to do with the faith we have in terms of if we're trusting God and we're responding to God and we're walking by faith, then God can produce in our lives a manner of an outflow of that faith in our lives that is not hypocritical it 's sincerely expressed it 's compatible with our identity in christ, and that 's the underlying idea here. This is about present practical faithfulness, so living or expressing faith in a manner that is consistent with your identity in christ that 's what he 's remembering about timothy he 's remembering that about timothy 's mother he 's remembering that about timothy 's grandfather, so the or grandmother so the idea here is you have Faith that is expressed in a manner that is without hypocrisy. And it was modeled for you first by your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. We have a three-generation family of people who are practically living out their faith in a way that's observable to others as being unhypocritical, as being sincerely expressed. And so we think about this. Here we have another reference to the value of a heritage or a tradition of faith. This internal faith that was externally expressed without hypocrisy was originally modeled by two generations in Timothy's own family, his grandmother and his mother. Now, Timothy's father, just as an aside, was a Gentile and probably an unbeliever. The Gentile part of it means nothing. Many people who were not Jewish came to place their faith in Jesus Christ, of course. It started, the message was first proclaimed to the Jewish people. He came unto his own and his own received him, not uh, Paul even as he... Calls himself a, an apostle out of due time, called out of due time. He was an apostle to the Gentiles to bring this message farther because the original. Jewish apostles were not fulfilling the mission that God had assigned to them which was that you should be ambassadors of, to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world it would be a, a ripple effect that would go out for, from Jerusalem that they would, they would do that directly and indirectly they, they would be a witness both by virtue of their teaching about Jesus Christ as inspired by the word of God so the revelation of scripture that was accomplished through some of them they would be a witness and their testimony would go out with a ripple effect even as martyrs for their faith. All of them, I think with the exception of, of John is the historical understanding of that. And, and then literally that they would go out, that the message would be expanded. And so Paul, even as he's doing that, the message is being expanded. It starts in Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria, out of most parts of the world. And so we have Asia Minor. Then we, you get over into Greece. You get over into some of these other areas. Um, and, and the gospel goes out. You talk about Macedonia and some of these other um, provinces that, are, that the gospel eventually makes its way to. But even there, the gospel first goes to synagogues and then it goes to the community as a whole. But because he's not even mentioned and we're talking about heritage of faith, stands to reason that he probably wasn't even a believer, hence the close relationship on a spiritual plane anyway, that Timothy would have had to have, he would have had to rely on another male figure to have a paternal impact in terms of faith or investing in him, mentoring him, other than his own father. All right, we move on. Therefore, in light of this tradition that you have, this reputation that I'm remembering of you having this unhypocritical manner of living, this this sincere expression of the faith that's in you outwardly. As I think about it, therefore, I want to remind you of something else. I want to remind you in verse 6 here to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I want to remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. So therefore, in light of this, referring to Paul, Timothy's uh, present practical faithfulness, your heritage of this, your, your testimony of this, I'm gonna remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. Now this word stir up, it carries the idea of fanning something into flame. You have a coal or an ember and you don't want it to die out. So you wanna keep it at a full flame is another way that that, that word can be interpreted. Keep at a full flame. What? Keep at a full flame. The gift of God which is in you. Now, what does this involve? It involves keeping at a full flame. This full flame. This gift of God that's in you. Not. It involves a volitional response. It, it involves Timothy having a desire and making a determination that he wants to be a bright, a bright roaring fire for God in his life. God isn't going to make him be a bright light for him. God wants him to invest in that, to want that, to desire that, to choose that for himself. There's an element of intentional diligence in this too. Being diligent. So when it says, even study to show yourself approved unto God a workman who needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth be diligent is actually how many translations have that there's there's a practical decision making part on your, of, on your end to decide this is worthwhile i'm i want my life to count for jesus christ and then being mindful maybe that's a better way to think about it being intentional and mindful about decision-making that would best lend itself to promoting that outcome in your life. This isn't about producing this in your life. Only the power of the Spirit of God could ever produce any manner of living that would bring God glory or would please God. But it's about, though, promoting and pursuing habits and decisions that would best lend themselves, though, towards getting your mind right getting your, your, your posture to a place of dependence on God to work in and through your life, a, a posture of willingness to let God use you. And so that's sort of the idea here. But I want you to think about this as you think about a fire. The tendency of a fire is to go out. The tendency of a fire is to go out. That's the natural default. Anyone who has tended a fire knows that it needs to be stirred up occasionally. What else does a fire need in order to burn bright? Huh? Fuel, yeah, air too, yes. Fan. There's a fanning it, you know, blow some air on it. It needs more fuel. Has newborn babes, what, desire the sincere milk of the word of God that you may grow thereby? Is that another reference to fuel? Effectively, yeah. This isn't about you pumping out a Christian way of life through self help and self effort, self determination. But it's about being convinced that this is a life that's worth living and being intentional about setting yourself up for success in a sense by pursuing and prioritizing the things that God says will be most beneficial to fueling that fire so it can burn brightly. Now we have gift of God here. Stir up what? The gift of God. It refers to Timothy's spiritual giftedness or his call to pastoral ministry. You see this in 1 Timothy 4.14, first part of that verse. This is the first letter Paul wrote to Timothy. He told him the same thing. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Same idea here is stir up the gift of God that is in you. What gift is that? Well, Timothy was a pastor. He was called to a pastoral ministry. He was gifted by God in that endeavor. You have been gifted by God to serve him in your own capacity. And everybody's giftedness is different. But you have a usefulness to God and he wouldn't he hasn't left you empty-handed. He's given you spiritual gifts. He's given you the biggest gift of all which was his spirit living inside of you to empower and enable and make possible a godly way of life. But then he's made everybody slightly different, right? So that he's given you a special kind of a a personality, a special kind of a makeup, special talents, special different kinds of Not everybody has the same treasures, but they're all gifts from God. Everybody has a certain amount of time, treasure, and talent. What are you gonna do with them? And so in this instance, He's saying, don't neglect this gift of God that you have, which in this context is referring to his giftedness to pastoral ministry. Now, why would he say that? Why would he have to say this to Timothy? Remember that he says there's nobody else beside Timothy I could send to care for your needs because there's no one else. All seek their own. People are not interested in serving the Lord. He tells one of the churches that the only one I can send is Timothy because he again has this external expression where he's living in a way that's consistent with his internal faith. His faith is something that God is using. But he's still having to tell him, don't neglect this, stir this up. Well, why? Because even Timothy would be susceptible to that fire burning out. You know what that people in ministry depending on the kind of ministry, are especially prone to burnout, to just being burnt out by it. And there's a reason why all believers are told not to be weary in well-doing. Because we naturally can get burnt out. We naturally shift the focus from what God's doing in our life and from God's power working in our life that even when we're wanting to do the, thing, say, the right things or good things, let God use us, we, we end up messing it up. Because it starts out good, but then we start to carry that load ourselves or try to pump it out through our own strength and then we get weary. That's why we have to be reminded, don't be weary. Don't be weary from doing good, but the in, in, inferred in that statement is don't start trying to do it yourself. Don't start trying to do it on your own. And, and, and the truth is I get burnt out. And you, if you get burnt out, certainly you can relate to that. You run out of You run out of steam sometimes. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the strength of your faith. Sometimes it just has to do with being physically run run out, run down. Sometimes you're kind of emotionally run down. There's lots of ways to be burnt out. And sometimes you're spiritually burnt out. And the reason for that is always, 100% of the time, because you start to lean on your own understanding instead of what? Trusting the Lord with all your heart. So in any event, maybe, Tim, maybe Timothy was naturally timid. Maybe he was easily overwhelmed by the scope of his pastoral ministry. There's some undertones in these letters that Paul writes about Timothy where maybe that is the case. Maybe, maybe he's facing a lot of aggression. Maybe he is despised because of his youth. And there's a number of different things you could kind of pull out. So anyway. Timothy is reminded, stir up the gift of God that is in you. Now, can you relate to this? I, I certainly expect that you can. The question is are you fanning the flame? Are you utilizing the gifts that God has given you? Are you intentional about that? Are, are you volitionally uh, choosing to want to serve the Lord with your life? Are you choosing this day whom you will serve? Now we have through laying on of hands, I don't want to get into it a lot, but laying on of hands, it represented the passing on of leadership or ordination. This was something that you could find throughout the Old Testament as well. It was a symbolic passing on of leadership or responsibility. So ordination means to be assigned some responsibility. And that was true in the Old Testament. It was then brought through through some of these, the, Jew, the Jewish ties and roots and heritage into the New Testament, to some extent here we see in the early church. Now, it refers to a time when Timothy's gifts were officially recognized. The exact time and the participants in this event cannot be determined, but there would actually be a gathering of elders that would, when somebody was going to go out into the mission field, there would be this laying on of hands. Now, I don't, it's not something that uh, culturally has persisted everywhere. You can find it in some places, but it was, it was a symbolic transition of leadership or a being entrusted or tasked with a certain, a certain mission. So we don't know who was participating in this, but Paul focused only on his role in the recognition of Timothy's gifts because he wanted to emphasize his close personal relationship with Timothy. Now, this is very important because some people get this passage wrong. The laying on of hands was not the cause of Timothy's receipt of a spiritual gift, but it was a visible representation and symbol of it. It was a way of recognizing it. And so that's the way to understand that. Now, verse seven, our last. Verse now he has a contrast here that he wants to bring to, to make to stirring up the gift of God. Because if you're not stirring up the gift of God, what's the alternative? Well, that you're operating in fear. You're operating where you're not independent on God. You're not trusting him. You're not prioritizing the things of faith. So here's our contrast, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. And it amazes me the things that people use this verse to try to support at times. The context is the stirring up of the spiritual gifts that God has given you to be a servant for him. Like Paul says, I serve God with a clear conscience. I'm serving God with a clear conscience. I'm encouraging you to serve God with a clear conscience, as you don't neglect the spiritual gifts that God has given you, I'm encouraging you to fan those into a flame instead of having or operating with a spirit of fear. This has nothing to do with so many other different things. You could take it as a general principle, sure, but you're stripping it of of the context. The context is to be a servant for Jesus Christ by utilizing the gifts that he's given you to advance the cause of Christ. That's the, that's the context. And so I see, I see it uh, misrepresented often. But it's a wonderful verse because that encouragement is wonderful. See, four here indicates for this reason. This is the reason I'm reminding you to keep your gift at a full flame. It's because the alternative is neglecting to fan the flame. And that is representative of not trusting the Lord. That's described as a byproduct of a spirit of fear. That word fear actually means timidness or cowardice. Timothy, don't neglect the giftedness that you have. Fan that to a bright flame so that everyone can see it because God has not given you a spirit that wants you to hide your light under a bushel basket. God wants your fire to burn bright for him. God doesn't want you to be a spiritual coward in a sense. He wants you to serve him effectively by taking advantage of the giftedness that God has given you. That's what Paul is getting at with Timothy here. And the contrast he's saying is that by trusting God, if you're trusting God and fanning into a flame, this giftedness that you have, you'd be utilizing or that would be a byproduct of this this spirit that God did give you which wasn't a spirit of cowardice. It was a spirit of power and love and sound mind. That's the spirit that Paul is wanting to remind Timothy about because that's God's spirit. That's the empowerment of the spirit of God. That's how God is undertaking in our lives to make it possible for us to utilize or have the brightest flame possible by utilizing the giftedness that he's given us to have a bright light for him if you think about a fire a fire in and of itself it, it can't have much of an impact until the fuel is put in it God is that fuel God, God, is, that, God is that fuel source that's the staying connected to the vine part of this, this that's the abiding part of this staying connected to him, that God can fuel this fire to be much, much bigger. Your part is blowing air at it in a sense or fanning it by having a desire for that. God's part in it is to actually be the fuel in it. Think about a flashlight. If you're intended to be a light for Jesus and your mission is to live to lift him up and to make him bigger, that flashlight is only gonna be as bright as what? The batteries that are in it, right? With fresh batteries, with powerful batteries, you have a powerful light. You have a far-reaching light. So, God has given us an empowered spirit. Not because we're so powerful, but because He's so powerful. And that spirit is described as a spirit of power, and a spirit of love, and a spirit that has sound thinking. Do we naturally have sound thinking apart from the Spirit of God giving, enlightening our eyes, opening our eyes, giving us a clear mind. No, that's why we have to pray, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Our mind is useless. The human mind driven by the flesh can't in any way please God. But a sacri- sacrificial and selfless mind, make me a servant like you, dear Lord, just like Paul describes himself. I have been, I'm living life this way, I'm already doing this. I have, this, I have a clear conscience about this, that I'm serving God. That's a, life that, that's a life that God can use. Now, as you think about this spirit that's available, being available doesn't accomplish anything. Being appropriated, though, makes that fire bright. Utilizing it makes the light bright. So we have this enabling power of the Holy Spirit, but it must be appropriated in order to be realized and utilized practically. And that's what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do as it relates to stirring up this gift that is in him, which what is the underlying focus of that again? Serving, serving the Lord. He's really telling him, serve the Lord to the fullest capacity possible by trusting in and relying on the spirit that God can put in you and has put in you instead of the natural tendency to be afraid and to not fulfill the mission. So praying for loved ones. Who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Are you praying for your loved ones? Second question is, is your definition of loved ones too small? Consider the scope of God's love and think about who your loved ones ought to be and who you should be praying for night and day and without ceasing. Are you praying when you pray for your loved ones? Are you praying that they would fan into flame the spiritual gifts that God has given them? So we talk about the content of our prayers. Is that what you're praying Are you praying that they would appropriate by faith a a spirit of power, love, and sound mind? Are you praying that your loved ones would appropriate by faith a spirit of power, love, and sound mind? There's a lot in this prayer this morning, even though it wasn't specifically a prayer, but talking about the kinds of things that Paul was thinking about as he related to Timothy as he was remembering him without ceasing and praying for him night and day. I hope that was encouraging. Let's have a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these reminders that we have when we open it. Pray that we would be encouraged by it, that we could grow in our faith. Pray that you would undertake in our lives to uh, allow us to have the most effective ministry possible, utilizing the gifts that you've given us, the provision that you've given us, that we would take advantage of and appropriate the spirit of power, love, and sound mind that you want to produce in and through us. Pray that we would be praying for those that we love. Pray that, pray that we would love more people than we currently do. In Jesus' name, amen.